Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer and, more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, during each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And, I hope, after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. Evie Wilde is one of Britain's most celebrated, exciting, younger novelists. And Evie has a new novel out, The Bass Rock. It's a book that grips and dazzles the reader in equal measure. Funny, angry, mysterious, moving, and ghostly. Evie's previous novels, After the Fire, A Small Voice, and All the Birds Singing, were shortlisted or won numerous prizes and led to her being proclaimed one of Granter's best young British novelists. A prestigious accolade. As if that weren't enough, Evie also ran Review for many years, an independent bookshop here in Peckham. It's a crisp, sunny, cool morning in South London, shot through by a pristine. We're not meeting at Review. Initially, we're at Evie's flat. Now, listener, there are some building works afoot next door, so if you should hear some banging or background interference, it is not the hauntings of Evie's new novel manifesting themselves. It's just the builders. So, without further ado, come on, let's go inside and talk to Evie Wilde. Evie, thank you so much for hosting us here in your lovely home. Pleasure. Can we talk initially though about review about the bookshop Mm -hmm. where we'll head over to in a bit i'm just curious how your involvement with the shop came about and the the history of the place etc well ros simpson opened the shop about 12 years ago now when there really wasn't all that much in peckham and she just opened this nice little shop and i happened to live down the road from it and i sort of wandered in a bit sort of fecklessly one day and was like have you got any work and she <laughs> she hired me on the spot. And then I worked behind the till for about 10 years. Wow. I wrote my first book there when it was a lot quieter. We didn't quite have the footfall that we have today. And I worked there up until I got pregnant. And then we got my friend Katia Wengraff to manage it, who is a brilliant bookseller. And is much better than I ever was, actually. It's, How so? I was much more of a silent sort of glowering presence I think in the shop it's much more black books and she's very good at remembering everyone's name and suggesting if you like this you'll like that yeah and and more than books really she kind of orchestrates great friendships and relationships in Peckham so she just sorts you out whatever your problem is basically (laughs) she's one of those people and she was at the time that we hired her a milliner she was making her own really beautiful hats Mm. So the idea was this would be a job that would enable her to carry on with that. But she loves bookselling so much that now she is a full-on career bookseller. So how did you juggle the writing and the shop over the years? 
Well, I mean, initially with the first book, it was we have a nice tool counter and I just propped my laptop up and wrote a book and ate sandwiches where no one could see. (laughs) And then with the second book, it was quite a lot more work because with the second book, Roz had moved away to Ireland. So I had more responsibility. I was managing it. And so then it was just a case of writing early in the morning. Yeah. um, late at night I guess and then yeah the third one I was out so then I discovered that writing with a baby is much harder than writing (laughs) with a job (laughs) and were you inspired in those early times writing in the shop by all the sort of plethora of books around you and voices and I'd love to say I was or was it a hindrance no I don't think it was either I think it's one of those things that it seems like a perfect sort of marriage doesn't it but there is a certain romance kind of booky romance to there is this sadly you don't absorb the books through your skin (laughs) so I I think I looked at it much more like it probably changed the way that I sold books rather than changed the way I wrote right a bit like if you're a butcher who rears the pig and butchers the pig you're gonna sell it with more love perhaps (laughs) than you would otherwise so your new book, we'll go to the bookshop later and have a, have a proper browse. Your new book, The Bass Rock, can you tell us a little bit about the novel? And maybe you might read the sure, opening sure. for us. The Bass Rock is a volcanic plug just off the coast of Scotland, off the coast of North Berwick. It's this big, dark, sort of malevolent presence, and it has borne witness to centuries, millennia of, of murder of women by men and you've got Sarah in the 1700s who is escaping through the forest from men who say that she's bewitched them and they they want to burn her and then in the 1950s you've got Ruth who is sort of a housewife living in this big house in North Berwick and trying to come to terms with the fact that her new widower husband is out of control, perhaps violent and very damaged. And then you've got more or less present day Viv, who is cleaning up after Ruth's death in North Berwick and beginning to realise there are things in the house that are very uncomfortable. Mm. So... Yeah, good pricey. (laughs) Load load of stuff. (laughs) And would you mind reading the opening and we can then talk a little bit more? Sure. Thank you. I was six, and just the two of us, my mother and I, took Bowie for a walk along the beach where she and Dad grew up, the shore a mix of black rock and pale cold sand. It was always cold, even in summer. We wore wool jumpers and our noses ran and became scorched with wiping on our sleeves. But this was November, and the wind made the dog walk close to us, her ears flat, her eyes squinted. I could see the top layer of sand skittering away so that it looked like a giant bedsheet billowing. We were looking for cowrie shells among the debris of the tide line. I had two digging into my palm, white like the throat of a herring gull. My mother had a keener eye and held six. I felt the pull of victory slackening. Resting in a rock pool was a black suitcase, bulging at the sides. The zip had split and where the teeth no longer held together, I saw two fingers tipped with red nails and one grey knuckle where a third finger should have been. 
the stump of the finger, like the miniature plaster ham I had for my doll's house. The colour had been sucked from the knuckle by seawater, leaving just a cool grey and the white of the bone. It was the bone, I suppose, that made it so much like the tiny ham. I moved my arm to swat something away from my face, and as I did, flies rose from the suitcase in a cloud thick and heavy. Behind me, my mother. Another one, she called. I found another one. And then the smell, like a dead cat in the chimney in summer. A smell so tall and so broad that you can't see over or around it. My mother walked up behind me. What's... I kept looking at the fingers and trying to understand. My mother pulling me by the arm. Come away, come away, she said, and spitting over and over onto the sand. Don't look, come away. But the more I looked, the more I saw, and peeking through the gaps between the white fingers was an eye that seemed to look back at me, that seemed to know something about me and to ask a question and give an answer. In the memory, which is a child's memory and unreliable, the eye blinks. Woomph. <laughs> and so it begins. It's so great. Thanks. So it's quite a swirling epic novel that then unfolds from there. As you say, it's a mm. sort of triptych, mm. three timelines and female protagonists. But their stories sort of ricochet and reverberate. Mm. And then the bass rock is sort of watching over, haunting everything. What inspired you to visit there and, and those three stories? Mm. I was trying to think of other novels that have adopted as that sort of structure the mm. the hours mm. sprang to mind how did you settle on that structure and and as a way means to explore those themes that you wanted to get into I always find structure a funny one like I don't settle on it until quite close to the end of writing the book so with this book I started writing it when my son was a newborn and so I would literally sit down at my desk while he slept, usually holding his hand, <laughs> so <laughs> typing with one hand. And I didn't have the luxury of time to think about chronology or what I wanted the story to be or anything like that. I just had to sit down every day and write, you know, for an hour at a time, twice a day, mm. whatever occurred to me. And so I think that's why we have the three different timelines. There are these three different things that just kept on coming up to me. And, and also, I think that I seem to remember there were quite a few more times which have maybe been partly sort of translated into the eight murders that run throughout the book that kind of start in prehistoric times and then go forward to sort of more or less present day. The structure, even though it seems like a very structured book and even does, though does, yeah. yeah and even though the last book I wrote seems incredibly kind of like I've thought about it a lot it's more to do with you know the book will show you what its structure ought to be you don't kind of think of a frame and mm. then impose it on the yes because the, stru the structure of the last novel was quite unusual yeah. and unexpected as a reader because you yeah. used one you were flipping between the two time frames but one of them was traveling yeah. Backwards as yeah. well. It was quite mathsy in that way. Yeah, it was um, ingenious oh, is thanks. another word. Or a fluke. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really think it's it's to do with getting to a certain amount of words mm. and, and a story and then playing with how it creates the most impact. It's quite a nice point when you're like, and now I'm going to think about structure. 
Yeah. Um, and, and it coalesces. Yeah, and it inevitably means you have to lose a load of work and you have to change the story and all that sort of thing. But I think so far, Touchwood, it's always sort of made the novel, you know, it's made yeah. the story. And the bass rock as well is, must have anchored some of this in terms of your characters' movements and the stories that you were mm. sort of swirling through there. I'm intrigued again still about the location because I confess Mr Ignorant I didn't know much about it Mm -hmm. and looking into it I realized that David Attenborough no less has described it as one of the 12 wonders of the natural world so it makes for quite a a really stinky rock (laughs) (laughs) but it's quite a bracing um, foundation for your story and also have to say the title was intriguing to me because your previous titles are quite sort of lyric they suggest quite lyrical you know all the birds comma singing after the fire comma a still small voice a beautiful and then this one's the bass rock comma (laughs) full stop yeah um, but it's just very emphatic you know yeah so the character of ruth in the 1950s is based on my grandmother we had a great aunt that lived in north berwick And it meant that my father grew up with holidays there. There are lots of photographs of him and my grandmother together with the bass rock in the background. And my grandmother, you know, I borrowed her timeline. So she married a widower with two small boys quite soon after his wife had died of tuberculosis while he was at war. So he came back from war, no wife traumatised boys, and then quite quickly married my grandmother. And I'd always seen that as he needed to marry someone so that the boys had a mother, which is quite an ungenerous kind of way of looking at it. But I knew my grandmother as a very, very intelligent woman who'd done nothing with her brain and was bored as hell and she chain-smoked and she was a gin alcoholic and she was, by my father's recollection, a terrible mother. And she went on to have three more kids and they all had interesting relationships with her. Very different, Mm. but my father in particular found her very difficult. And so as his daughter, I sort of absorbed that and was like, it's one of those relations that you slightly roll your eyes at. And then inheriting these photo albums after her death and seeing her as a young woman, kind of really sort of vital and sexy and interesting. And you go, of course... There is so much more to her. Yeah. So the story, I th- that thread started off with me thinking about an alternative version of her, I think. And the setting of the Bass Rock felt important because it was kind of that linchpin where my father was, she was, I was as a child as well. And I think the landscape there has always really interested me because it's, it sort of always feels off season somehow. It's mm. like a it's like a 1950s holiday destination and it's carpeted in golf course and and then there's there are these great rocks out in the sea and there are oily gannets washing up and tar on the beach and there's the wind that blows sand in your face and and they had an outdoor swimming pool which as someone who's half Australian seems very weird to have that in Scotland yes. you know even in the summer you're like I mean who's going for that <laughs> but people did you know it was like it's all that kind of postcard seaside mm. thing 
And they, these strange landmarks, you've got the Bass Rock and Craigleith and Fedra, and then on the land there's the Law, which is this really steep hill with a whalebone right at the top, like a little beacon. And it just seems like a strange, witchy place. And then there are the witch trials that happen there. There's an old church, St Andrew's Old Kirk, which is by the Seabird Centre, and it's this little building where these witches were accused of all sorts of things and then they were killed and then, you know, it, it feels like all of the things that I'm interested in kind of pulled together in one place. Yeah, well, it works beautifully in the, in the novel. Did you head up there mm-hmm. while you were writing it? I did. Because it is very... Very, very vivid. All the, you know, just listening to you describe in quite matter of fact terms the place, but then t- when it's transposed into your novel, mm. it's very, very rich. Thanks. Well, I went there a lot when I was a kid, so I kind of wrote a lot of that stuff from memory, a bit like from the, mem- the opening yeah. of the novel as well. You yeah, know, in terms of that exactly. filter or and sort of the nostalgia is quite useful. And it always felt to me when I was a child like it was the nineteen fifties there. But then before I had my son, I knew that I was, that was kind of the area that I was going to be writing in. And I sort of went on a mad eight-month pregnant scramble over the rocks there and um, took loads of photographs and recorded the sound of the wind on the beach and picked up little smelly bits of tar. (laughs) Yeah, and I stayed in the Golfing Hotel, which is this really like imposing gothic hotel which is just for golfers and their wives who it's got a spa in so the men go and play golf and the women go and have manicures and stuff and I got a really cheap deal and was there very very pregnant and felt like I was being looked at like very bad luck (laughs) (laughs) so deliberately having a drink in the evening so everyone could see (laughs) yeah and you mentioned the word gothic you know some of your other novels as well have gothic elements but this really does feel very much in keeping with some gothic tradition you know it's very Mm. modern in being a contemporary novel but of course there's du Maurier's sprang to mind a little bit Mm. for me but M.R. James clearly and there have been beaches in your other books but here that beach and Henry James as well Mm -hmm. a little bit how much were you interested in exploring some of those sorts of tropes or tradition not not consciously but that, that sort of tradition I shouldn't say this because I lecture at university, but I got a D in English at A-level and that's the last time I studied it. So these are all things that obviously I pick up on because, like subconsciously, because I love horror. I'm not any good at categorising books. It's just like, I don't know, maybe it's a thriller, maybe it's something. I just write the stuff that interests me and it turns out that's like gothic-y stuff. It's very little deliberate about what I do. It yeah, just... and the, but the gothic lends itself to that in the sense of the subconscious mm. and the sort of ricochets between the time frames that you've yeah. got and the identity, but also, of course, the threat and the mm. looming violence and mm. male violence in, in all its different forms yeah. and the visitations of the past on the present and future between those generations. Mm. It's all very gothic. And, you know, that is gothic in its best sense should be from coming from that subconscious mm. anyway. I don't know. I mean, I've I've always read a lot. I remember a like a driving holiday when I was a little kid, like really quite small, maybe six, and my mum had a audio cassette of Jamaica Inn 
And I think we were driving in France, so we're driving for hours now, and we just listened to it over and over again. There you go. And something about that, and I haven't read it since, but something about Jamaica Inn stays with me, like a, an atmosphere, I think. Mm. I mentioned the, the different tropes, but the mirrors as well. There's a lot of different moments where reflections aren't recognisable. But again, mm. it's those, the three characters' stories are spilling over mm. into each other's time frames or narratives yeah. until they kind of do feel like one story. I was probably about three quarters of the way through writing it. And then Me Too happened. And there was something about that moment where I was just like witch hunting and it's all the same thing. It has changed shape, but it's all the same. Again, there's in, the, the instinctive threat of violence, etc. Mm. And the, the patterns are all still the same. Yeah. In, exactly. es, in essence. Yeah. I mean, that does come through. There was a f fantastic section in particular quite late in the mm -hmm. novel that I was struck by in this sense if you don't mind, if it's not too presumptuous, I'll just read it no, back okay. to you. Like I say, it's quite late in the novel. Mm -hmm. There is no other point in our lives when either of us would follow these instructions, but I see Catherine close her eyes without hesitating and it feels good to follow orders. When my eyes are closed, Maggie starts humming and then chanting, I am surprised that I'm not embarrassed. Diana, goddess of the moon, light the light. Pan, horned god of the wild earth, light the light. She squeezes our hands and we join in and we just say these sentences over and over and there's the feeling that you get when you're crying and shouting in the car on the motorway but also later a feeling of elation and all there is is the rosy black of my closed eyes and the sounds reverberating in my teeth and it feels good. I am just my hands joined to my sisters and my eyeballs safe in their sockets, my tongue and my spine all the way down to my base. I don't know how long we chant for but it is like I'm a bat or a whale, and I can see that there are people in the kitchen with us. There are children and women, all holding hands like us. And I wonder, is this the ghost everyone sees? Is it in fact a hundred thousand different ghosts? It's only possible to focus on one at a time. They spill out of the doorway, and I see through the wall that they fill the house top to bottom. They're locked in wardrobes. They are under the floorboards. They crowd out of the back door and into the garden. They're on the golf course and on the beach and their heads bob out of the sea and when we walk, we are walking right through them. The birds on the bass rock, they fill it. They're replaced by more. Their numbers do not diminish with time. They nest on the bones of the dead. It's so good. It's such good Chuckle stuff. A minute, isn't I it? love it. <laughs> no, but actually you say that, but your book, I have to say, is really, really funny. Thank you. And almost made me laugh out loud. And I say that as someone who never laughs out loud at a book, and I want to ask you whether you do. <laughs> what, at my own books? No, not okay, your own good. book. Yeah, sitting there making yourself <laughs> oh, cry um, with laughter. No. Yeah, what did I read recently that made me laugh a lot? I like, by the way, them carrying the ashes in the bag for bag life. for life. <laughs> that was great, for instance. And the supermarket queue kind of mm. rom-com gone wrong sort yeah. of uh, interaction was hilarious as well. It's a very, very funny novel Thank in fairness. Thank you, that's really kind. I think, I don't know how you get away from humour, you know, if you're dealing with dark stuff. I just think it's such a natural thing for us to laugh in moments of horror, you know, even if it's nervousness. But life is so ridiculous yes. um, most of the time. I think because Viv, the woman in the more or less contemporary strand is a very thinly veiled version of me. I think I was able to put in quite a lot of sort of 
pratfalls and, you know, just <laughs> like just moments that you privately sort of smack yourself on the forehead for. It was quite therapeutic in that way. Oh, they're very funny. They Thank work you. really, really well. And, yeah, they bring it sort of down to earth. They, again, they feel very real and, again, contemporary as well as, you know, the different time frames going right back to the kind of witchery um, and onward. And you mentioned Me Too, and of course there's a strong streak of anger running through the the novel as well as there was in All the Birds Singing, in terms of the looming threat of male violence. And here there's all sorts of forms of abuse from gaslighting all the way through to rape. Again, how conscious is this... Because there is, you know, me too as well. It's, I think it, there's a strong me, message here. Yeah, there is, and it's not that I set out to write a book about no. that stuff, and and neither did I set out with the other two books to write about, you know, toxic masculinity. Or I feel like this is the book that those two books were sort of running up at in a funny way. Like I was kind of thinking about all of those things in a way, mm. all three of them are about exactly the same thing. I don't think you as a writer write one book about something and then you're done with it. I think it kind of snowballs in a way. And this book, you know, as I said, I had a, a young baby when I was writing most of it and that makes you very angry. I mean, you have twins, you understand the <laughs> anger there, <Yes. laughs> but just trying to carry on with your life once you've had a baby as a woman, it's quite amazing how many people want to get involved and tell you you're doing it incorrectly. So I would go and breastfeed my son to sleep, which you're not supposed to do apparently, but he's fine, <laughs> um, on a bench outside the National Theatre. And then I'd go in once he was asleep and write for an hour while he slept. And the amount of times I had people sitting down next to me saying things along the line of, you'd both be much more comfortable at home. You know, what are you doing? He's cold. Why are you doing this in public? And there's that level of rage. Yeah. <laughs> then there's the level of rage of the kind of various abuses that I think in my last book, I was looking at being like a young woman and the confusion of the message that you are supposed to be you're supposed to appear sexy, you're supposed to want sex, but you're not supposed to enjoy sex. Like that kind of weird juxtaposition of like, you know, it kind of pulls young women apart, I think. And I think it has a lot to do with that anger, binge drinking, self-harm, all of that stuff. And, and the way that they approach sex, the weird aggression that we have towards men when we're quite young, mm -hmm. because we're being told all of these different things that pull in different directions something that happened while I was publicizing all the birds singing is I had my drink spiked at a party and thankfully nothing happened I just felt very unwell for several weeks and talking to a lot of my good friends about that and you know being like oh that's lucky you know don't know who did it but scary yeah the amount of them who had had their drinks spiked and it hadn't ended as well as it did for me it just really amazed me. And the more that we talk about it, you know, that's why that extract you just read is an important one for me because it's showing the hope of the book, which is Viv might survive because she's talking about stuff and noticing the deaths. And there's so much power in women speaking about it. And that's why Me Too was such a groundbreaking, incredible thing, is that it got us talking about it. And I, I saw last night on Sex Education, the Netflix series, mm. that they 
have this scene where one of the young women gets wanked on on a bus. And nearly every woman who's made it to adulthood has had that. Maybe not to completion, but, you know, you've had a, a raw penis wiped on you, at least, on the tube. And you just don't mention it because you're just like, that is part of being a woman. You know, and the thing that you should do is you can move down the tube, you can make sure that you're always, all your flesh is covered, you can, you know, there are things you can do, but, you know, everyone's had it and you just absorb that and carry it with you. And then that, I don't know, there are just layers and layers of little things like that that affect you massively. But at the time you're like, this is just a little thing. I'm not physically injured and it's really embarrassing to tell people that somebody wiped his willy on me on my way to school. Yeah. Like, And you just don't talk about it and you cover it up. And then there are just these little rocks in you that never really get shown the light. There are these podcasts. There's My Favourite Murder. I don't know if you've heard mm-hmm. of that one. That started about three years ago. And it's just two women talking about murder that they're interested in. Serial killers and, and that sort of thing. And they're very, very funny what was totally unexpected about it is there are women all over the world who are really fascinated by murder and nobody knew, (laughs) you know, we were all like secretly Googling Murderpedia and, you know, are there any active serial killers in Peckham and things like that. (laughs) What happened was this sort of community grew up around my favourite murder and around All Killer No Filler, the, the British version And it's given a huge amount of power to women to pay attention to their own instinct. And it sounds like such a simple thing, and why weren't we doing it before? But um, their catchphrase, fuck politeness, is one of those things that you realise that as a woman you are, it's ingrained in you that whatever happens, you have to be polite. If a man starts talking to you on the tube while you're reading a book and they're like, oh, what's your book about? And you say... I'm really sorry, I'm reading my book, can you leave me alone? You get this tirade of fury, this like, you know, I'm just trying to be friendly and I don't fancy you and I'm not trying to do anything. And it becomes aggressive and very, very quickly and really uncomfortable. And so I think we've all kind of, to an extent, we just look up and we smile and we're like, oh, it's a book about blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And, And we end up in conversation with someone we don't want to talk to And why are they talking to us anyway? What's their plan? You know, it's all these kind of, these little moments in your everyday life as a woman that you have to make way and be polite. And actually it really affects your day and it really exhausts you. And the amount of women, including me, who would get home after a day's work and come in and not take their coat or their shoes off or turn the lights on or make any dinner or anything and just sit on the sofa and just feel like, Jesus Christ, <laughs> mm. and, you know, stare at a wall. I think it's a big load. It's a big depressing load. And the more we talk about it, the more you can see it happening. And I feel like other women looking out for other women and connecting with other women, all that stuff is so important. And, I've seen a huge change in it of women looking on public transport to see if that woman's okay with the attention she's getting from that person. There was a YouTube clip recently of a woman telling some drunk men to shut up because they were singing a song about how best to fuck a woman on the tube. And she just stood up and just shouted at them. And then the rest of the 
passengers or all like shout at them too. And it's this wonderful moment of like, you know, we see you and we hear you. And if you're going to say that, you can fuck off. Um, It feels incredibly powerful. Yes. And do you feel positive then that things are changing a little bit? As you say, there is a sort of sense that there's a spell or a circle that is perpetuating itself in your novel, but that there are little openings of, um, as you're describing, change. There's going to be stretching into the future, murders and murders and murders, you know, of course, it's not good, that's not going to change. But there is that hope of survival, I think, and that feeling of sisterhood, I suppose, which which sounds like a really weird word. I think I should say also for the blokes out there listening that mm. you know the men in the novel although there's a, a sort of core again it's that sort of instinctive mm. thing that you're tapping into a lot of the time in terms of the violence mm. and the threat of violence they're also damaged and oh, yeah. there is a, there is abuse that is visited upon them yeah. along the way and you can see why these fractured male egos or whatever are mm being forced upon the women and how this circle of violence again is perpetuating itself yeah I mean I think that's it's one of the big misunderstandings of when people talk about toxic masculinity they're not saying women are abused by men they're saying it's terrible for everyone Mm. that's the point and it's the male suicide rate you only have to look at that and you've mentioned the war as well, which it features in terms yeah. of the, the backdrop to yeah, I think one the, strand. The trickle down effect of war is quite astounding. And you know, I am of a generation where my grandfather fought in the war, my uncle fought in Vietnam, and you know, it's really at arm's length, but you can see it in the children and the grandchildren. Like it's still there. It percolates through. Mm. Speaking of children, there was one, again, in terms of how the novel is stitched together, there are lots of motifs that, as we've talked about, sort of came about organically. But tickling Mm. was one of them, (laughs) and I was really struck by it. Do you know the essay on tickling by Adam Phillips? No. I I brought you a copy. (gasps) Thank you. Because it's amazing. And I was just struck by tickling. Again, I know you were writing this while you're pregnant and Mm. your kids are young, but tickling... It's such a great expression of the threat of physical abuse and that sort of strange netherworld between pleasure and pain. Mm. And as the child mm. is laughing, and it often involves them being pinned down. Mm. But he's amazing. I mean, Adam Phillips is an amazing psychoanalyst, writer. But let me just read, if I may, a paragraph, because you'll like it. Helpless with pleasure and usually inviting this helplessness, The child in the ordinary, affectionate, perverse scenario of being tickled is wholly exploitable. Particular adults know where the child is ticklish. It is, of course, only too easy to find out. But it is always idiosyncratic, a piece of personal history, and rarely what Freud called one of the predestined erotogenic zones. Through tickling, the child will be initiated in a distinctive way into the helplessness and disarray of a certain primitive kind of pleasure, dependent on the adult to hold and not to exploit the experience. And this means to stop at that blurred point, so acutely felt and tickling, at which pleasure becomes pain, and the child experiences an intensely anguished confusion, because the tickling narrative, unlike the sexual narrative, has no climax. 
It has to stop or the real humiliation begins. The child, as the mother says, will get hysterical. Mm. It's really good stuff. It's really good. But you tapped into that. It comes up more than once in the novel. Mm. And again, there's a great scene between one couple who are fighting after they've had sex and he tickles her and she gets mad about mm. it. Mm. She hates, I fucking mm. hate tickling. <laughs> and he's baffled by this because they've just had sex and mm. then she's having a go at him for tickling her. Mm. But again, it's it's that sort of, a bit like the opening of your novel, it's that childish thing. It's sort of in there, instinctive. And then we as conscious human beings have to know when to stop mm. or when it's not funny or can yeah. you see that someone's actually not laughing they're actually struggling to breathe yeah 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 well with my my son we have a safe word he screams sandwich whenever <laughs> he wants it to stop and we're really really strict about like keeping to that but yeah I think tickling the after sex tickling that mm. you're talking about there are so many things that a man can do to a woman and then afterwards just go like I was only joking. What are you getting upset about? And that's really what that is. For me, that is tickling encompasses. What are you going to report? (laughs) And, you know, because the reaction is laughter, even though it is, like you say, hysterical laughter, you don't have a leg to stand on it. I don't see many steps between that and somebody being like, oh, she loved it. You know, she says she didn't want to have sex with me now, but at the time she was well into it. It isn't a sort of very earliest expression of those sorts of... yeah that sort of routine yeah. yeah that can in adult darker spectrum lead to rape yeah absolutely there is by the way a little rejoinder on tickling in adam phillips's essay because he has an eight-year-old in a session who talks about tickling and she says when we play monsters and mommy catches me she never kills me she only tickles me oh. <laughs> well i think when you're a kid you can't imagine what somebody would do when they catch you mm. That is the thing that people do when that when there's kind of chasing. You can't imagine what the next step is. So it is it's like when you have a dream when you're a little kid and you're like, the monster's chasing me and it's gonna tickle me. Why does that fill me with such dread? Yes. Like, and you mentioned that this is partly inspired by your family. I was curious mm. what they and it's dedicated to the wilds. Mm. And by the way, your first novel, After the Fire, a Still Small Voice was dedicated to the strangers mm. can this be that your families are called the wilds and the strangers they are. that's, that's so why cool. they got married <laughs> perfect perfect yeah how have your family reacted to this one so far they haven't read it yet okay <laughs> clenching <laughs> um they all understand i hope that this is a reimagining of something they understand by now about yeah. what fiction writing means and though there are always going to be things that you draw on from real life I don't think I'm exposing anyone in any way that they wouldn't kind of feel comfortable with. Do you feel like your grandmother, who I assume is no longer with us, would feel a sense of validation or in some way gratified or grateful that you've given her some sort of voice that perhaps she wasn't afforded? That's a really interesting question. I'd love to say yes. I think she would probably not read the book and just go, darling, isn't it marvellous? And that would be it. I think she had kind of checked out a long time ago. Maybe the person she was in the old photographs yeah. would feel a a link. But really, the Ruth in the book, you know, I allow her to do a lot more things than my grandmother ever allowed herself to do. And I don't think Ruth is ever bored. She's 
anxious and confused yes. and angry, but she's never bored like my grandmother was. Well, maybe we should think about heading over sure. to review shortly. Mm-hmm. Normally, there are three of us because I meet with an author and a librarian or bookseller, but here we are in your home and it's just you because you're wearing both hats, you wear both hats. But normally I ask in the venue in situ how our guests decide to catalogue their books or organise their shelves. But I feel really sort of nosy and wary of being (laughs) prying as we're in your place, looking around at the books. But it's Colston, Newcastle, you work in the shop or worked. And then how would you then fashion your shelves here or how are the books here is it sort of like oh whatever they're just going to go where they're going to go because they're so regimented there or is it in our last flat we alphabetized them and Mm -hmm. you know in fiction non-fiction and we spent several weeks doing that and your husband's your partner is in publishing husband's in publishing he is yeah so now we just have piles and piles of books around the place and then if I need a book to teach with at Kent, I generally end up buying it again, which is a bit aggravating. I sort of don't know who I was when I had the time to sort them out, yeah. which feels really yeah, sad. Yeah. But there is no order, sadly. There's no method here. There's just lots. <laughs> yes, yes. It would be lovely to have a browse of review with sure. you. And perhaps you'd let me um, buy you a book, although, again, it feels like Coles Newcastle. <laughs> At least I can support the shop or you, if you don't want to choose one there, you can recommend one for me or whatever you like. But I do like to celebrate these places and as well as the serendipity of the shelves there. So in the browsing process. So that'd be fun. Thank you so much though. Pleasure. Do you have customers come in and buying your book? Yeah, asking I mean, for your book. Have you ever had anyone ask for your book? Not realise it. Yeah, quite a lot. <laughs> um, which is the much more comfortable way round. Yeah. <laughs> do you say? Do you want? Do you want me to sign it, or do you tell no, them? You no. just let them buy just, it, and yeah. just really. I mean, I have in the past. If we've been in a conversation, and yeah. you know, if we're kind of getting on well, and occasionally they'll be like, "Why would I want you to sign it?" they get a bit spooked yeah yeah i can understand that yeah it's like why do you want just a perfect stranger to sign this book you've bought yeah it's very odd (laughs) but then you must get a fair number of local being a local sort of author figure in the community as well yeah a figure in the community yeah that's how i like to think of myself (laughs) yeah it's a beautiful shop though and it smells of new book thank you yeah well i hope You'd hope so. It's lovely. Just <laughs> no, close really the door lovely. to the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough to know where to, where would you begin if you were going to choose a book for pleasure. Is that does that feel funny to be coming in here to choose a book for it pleasure because it's work worky well, yeah. place? I think I um, most of the books that I read at the minute are to do with helping other people learn to write. Right, because you're teaching. Because I'm teaching at I'm teaching creative writing at Kent it sort of changes how you think about books. You're kind of like, oh, is there a section in there that I can photocopy and it will show them how to do a good image or significant detail or or something like that. And Are there texts that you return to? Like, um, Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of, and it's a very old 
one but the artist's way I just think is really useful in terms of kind of relaxing people into a sort of creative process and mm-hmm. it's all really embarrassing talking about it as it makes you Why? sound like I think because writers often want to keep it quite mystical yes and actually the reality of writing a novel is it's a lot of hard work and a lot of time and graft application yeah I always feel like it's better to try and err on the side of being a bit kind of brutal about it rather than you mm. know have a nice drink and smoke a pipe and you know wait <laughs> for the muse you know yeah. but I think the artist's way is really good because it has practical stuff about if you're sat looking at a blank page you know do this mm. and that, I find that it's useful but I think Max Porter is really good for people writing now mm-hmm. to just show show that you can really do whatever you want with the page. I think that's really inspiring. It seems to surprise students quite a lot, hmm. which is nice. Yeah. Have you read The Diary of a Bookseller? <laughs> no, I haven't. It's all for all Again, Coles, <laughs> Coles yeah. well, there you go. This is very good, actually. Easier Ways to Say I Love You by Lucy Fry. And it's a memoir. I think it's literally just come out. And it's about her learning to live within a polyamorous marriage with her wife and her son. Yeah, it's quite a startling book, I think. You absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it. According to the cover. Such a great quote. (laughs) (laughs) No. An important voice and beautifully written. (laughs) It's a fantastic cover as well. Yeah, isn't it? Easier ways to say I love you. The nice title as well. Mm. Well, thank you. That's, I think, as good a recommendation as I could want for. Good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ex Libris. If you enjoyed the conversation with Evie Wilde, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your brain food. That way, you'll help us champion libraries and indie bookshops. To look inside Review in Peckham, put faces to names and explore the podcast's other episodes visit our website www.exlibrispodcast.com you can also find out more not to mention win signed copies of evie's novels including the bass rock via social media find me on twitter and instagram at that ben holden ex libris is produced by chris sharp grundy lazimbra and myself its music is composed and performed by adam pleath Ex Libris is brought to you in association with the Lightbulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning, providing opportunities to shine.